Welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. I am Dr. Nicole Lowe, and with me is Dr. Stephanie Edmonds. We are both PhD-prepared nurses and the founders of Woman-Centered Health. Join us as we talk with health professionals and researchers who can help you improve your communication with patients about sexual and reproductive health. Please visit our website to learn more and connect with us on social media by going to www.womancenteredhealth.com. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Women-Centered Health Podcast. Um, it might be kind of wondering why you hear a different voice, and it is just Stephanie doing the introduction today because today we are going to interview Dr. Nicole Lowe. Uh, she's going to talk about her dissertation um, related to responsible sexual behavior. So before we get to her interview, we want to make our monthly pitch to become a patron of the Women-Centered Health Podcast by going to www.patreon.com slash WCH, where you can get our lovely show notes, which are a little behind, (laughs) thanks to me. Or you can find out more on our website at www.womencenteredhealth.com. Also, if you like our podcast, please tell your colleagues and give us a five-star review on iTunes. Thank you. So, hi, Nicole. Thanks so much for being on our (laughs) podcast today. (laughs) Uh, So, as always, we hear your voice so often, but let's go back and talk about your background a little bit. Yeah. So, I was thinking about this last night and... Uh, I was like, I wonder where to start. So my background is I'm originally from northern Wisconsin, and then I went to nursing school at Winona State University, which is also where so where I got my nursing degree and also where I played rugby, so go Black Cats. And then I got my master's and my PhD from the University of Iowa. And then during my dissertation process, I ended up moving around. My husband was in the Air Force at the time. So we lived in Omaha, Nebraska. Then we lived in Wichita, Kansas. And now we are back in Iowa in a rural area again, which has been, you know, those towns seem like really big cities to me. And so it was a nice break to come to a small rural area again, but also a little bit of a culture shock after having spent so much time in in bigger areas like Iowa City, Omaha, and Wichita. And so now I'm actually so close, um, hopefully going to be putting out the last paper of my dissertation, which is the part that is so near and dear to my heart, and that is the rural women piece of my dissertation. So fingers crossed. I think we can all agree that 2020 has been weird and it keeps delaying us and obviously our show notes as well. So we are also working to get those out. So hopefully between the paper and the show notes, we can get all caught up and and be in a good place. Do you want to talk at all about what you're doing now as far as your yes. Yes, I do actually have a job, too, that I totally forgot to mention. I am also in my second year as a VA quality scholar out of the Iowa City VA, so learning to do quality improvement research, which I've really enjoyed, and I've been working with the uh, women's clinic and the folks there who have been absolutely amazing, and people that Stephanie's connected me with because Stephanie is amazing, Uh, so really doing some fun things there. 
and I, oh, I also have two tiny people who are adorable, and I have two rescue pits and a cat that I accidentally rescued. You can do that, uh, but I'm actually getting quite attached to him. So, yes, thank you for reminding me that I have a job. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> so our other question, which you know well, is what informs your perspective? So in other words, why do you do what you do and what is most valuable to you? Yes, this is, I love hearing other people's responses and now I'm afraid that mine's not going to live up to some of the amazing responses that we have gotten. But at the end of the day, what has always, always kept me moving forward, like when I was crying over my statistics homework and why I got my PhD and everything I kept going back to when I was struggling in school was rural women. Rural women have always inspired me. They've always driven me to do what I'm doing. Whenever I now look into future careers, I say, okay, how does this relate back to rural women and how can I help rural women? And especially when it comes to sexual and reproductive health. And part of that's because I identify as a rural woman. And I think just being in that context and not that all women don't have their own, you know, each context comes with its own things. There's just something about rural women that it has just always really been near and dear to my heart. And I feel like they too have their own set of contextual issues that impact their sexual and reproductive health. And after doing my dissertation, it really highlighted how we don't have a great understanding of rural women in sexual and reproductive health and the context that they navigate. And so rural women, they've just always been my jam and they're what keep me going. So I'm excited to talk about this today. Well, awesome. So let's jump right in. And we are going to talk about responsible sexual behavior. So that is really my first question. Usually when you tell people that your dissertation was on responsible sexual behavior, you kind of get a look like, like, oh, that's like sounds like a judgmental term. And which is okay. It does sound like that a little bit. But that's not really what you mean when you say that. So can you talk a little bit about what you mean when you say responsible sexual behavior? Yes, the usual knee-jerk reaction to me saying that my dissertation is on responsible sexual behavior is a knee-jerk reaction of like, whoa, you know, you're not a safe place. How can you say that you're a women's health researcher? And so I always have to add this like caveat that it's not as conservative as you think. Actually, it's not at all conservative. <laughs> and so really, I I actually, within my dissertation, and we'll get there, there's three different definitions that, that I looked at or created, two that I created, one that I looked at. And this is really, when I say responsible sexual behavior, this is looking at how the world says it. So often in our context, you hear people say, be responsible. You know, we need to have responsible sexual behavior, this whole idea of responsibility. And so the first part of my dissertation was really looking at, here we're using this concept, responsible sexual behavior, but nobody's defining it. What does this actually mean? And so my first step was looking at the literature and, and saying, okay, what, how's the literature using this concept? How are they defining it? And then from there is when I, so I had this 
very text-based, literature-based definition. And then the other two parts of my dissertation were looking at how women use this term. Because what was interesting in the second part of my dissertation was a secondary data analysis of some data that my uh, mentor had collected with college women. And responsible sexual behavior was actually a concept that they naturally came up with. This wasn't something that she said, hey, how do you find responsible sexual behavior was a concept that they're saying, you know, to be irresponsible or to have responsible sexual behavior, X, Y, Z. So, so then I took that data and said, okay, how, how are college women using this concept? What does this mean to them? And then I drew some comparisons between you know, this literature based and then college women based. And then the third part of my dissertation, because rural women are my jam and I really wanted to do something with rural women in my dissertation was looking at, okay, how are rural women defining responsible sexual behavior? But then I wanted to take it one step further and say, okay, so not only are they defining responsible sexual behavior. Sometimes I just say RSB. So no, when I say RSB, that's responsible sexual behavior is okay. So not only how are they defining it, but what's happening in their context that's impacting their ability to actually enact or quote unquote be their definition of responsible. So looking more at the rural context and how is that impacting quote-unquote, responsible sexual behavior. And then the part that I'm at right now with finishing up the the paper for that is really drawing across all three and and what's happening at all three. And obviously there, I'm sure we'll get into this, is there are some issues, (laughs) let's just say that, with using this phrase, responsible sexual behavior. So, so yes, sounds very conservative, but not in when you start reading and the conclusions I draw and things that come of it. Okay. Thank you. So um, a little bit more about pers- or con- context. Why did you decide to study responsible sexual behavior in this way? So two things. So one was because at the time I was working with my mentor and helping her uh, with her research and we were writing a paper doing some data analysis with her dissertation research. And it was a concept that came up that was really interesting to me because as, you know, a teenager or young adult, you do hear, well, be responsible, be responsible. And so I found it interesting that women naturally brought up this concept. Again, this wasn't something that the researcher brought up. And so taking that from, you know, this data that it, came from there. And then thinking about my personal experiences and how much at a society level we talk about responsibility, I just I think that was really what brought me to that point was to call out and say, hey, what does this actually mean? And I wanted to, based on what we are finding with the secondary data analysis, it just seemed like there was some odds there with maybe how society defines responsible sexual behavior. So I really wanted to explore that some more. Thank you. So let's go through the sort of three Mm -hmm. phases that you described earlier and talk first about the concept analysis that you did for responsible sexual behavior. And just as a reminder, concept analysis is a very nursey 
thing and it's a it's a type of literature review and i did one as well for my dissertation Mm -hmm. (laughs) because of course we have to be the same and so if you want to learn more about that part you can listen to my episode on reproductive Mm -hmm. life planning but let's talk about your concept analysis so where you pulled literature from and what you eventually defined as responsible sexual behavior. So just a really quick overview, if you don't have time to check out Stephanie's episode, is there some big pieces that you look for when you do this concept analysis? One of them is antecedents. And so that is what needs to be in place before this concept occurs. And so my concept was responsible sexual behavior. So what has to be in place before responsible sexual behavior can actually occur. And then in the data or in the literature, it's interesting why you do a concept analysis is because there's not a definition usually included. So what as a researcher, what your job is to do is to look at this literature and create one because there isn't one right now. And so when you're doing that, you're looking for attributes or like what are some defining parts of this concept? And then you're also looking for consequences. So what happens as a result of this concept? So when RSB takes place, what are the consequences? And within that are some other things. You look at the historical context, some related concepts, those types of things. But the main part to create the definition is antecedents the attributes and the consequences, the attributes being the biggest part about the definition. And so what I did was I looked at first started with like peer reviewed literature, of course. And then the nice thing about this concept analysis is that it also includes gray literature or, you know, more of your stuff in your Google searching. And so what I've After all said and done, I had included 20 articles and a lot of them came from the time that David Satcher was the Surgeon General, which this is also when I was first introduced to Dr. Satcher's work, which uh, was amazing and with life goals to meet him. Uh, But he had put out a call to action to promote sexual health and responsible sexual behavior. And so there was definitely a big push to to publish during that time or on that concept. And so what I found while I was doing was that there was a lot on adolescent responsibility, but not a lot on adult. My frame was 18 and above. I didn't want the adolescent. I wanted more of that like college women and above age. And there's a ton, a ton on adolescent responsibility. Not so much once you turn 18. And so the definition that I quote unquote created based on the literature was that responsible sexual behavior is a socially desirable and deliberate pattern of behaviors used to promote sexual health, manage risk, and foster respect for sexual partners within the context of community influences. So the big parts were socially desirable, meaning that it's kind of set by what's socially desirable, not necessarily the woman, that it's deliberate, it's individualized, there's a risk management piece, a respect for others, and again, it happens within, it's situated within the community. And some antecedents to RSB taking place is that women need to have forethought, knowledge, and access to resources and services. So you cannot be responsible without, again, forethought, knowledge, access to resources. 
And then the consequence to RSB or what happens as a result is that you have protection from risk, enhanced relationships, self-fulfillment, and life enhancement. So really a lot of great positive things come from responsible sexual behavior. But we'll kind of get more into how that's really nuanced in real life. And I just wanted to clarify, because I feel like I have to clarify this too with my concept analysis, that the consequences are not what you think that the consequence of responsible sexual behavior are. The consequences come from what the yes. literature yes. says. or Yes, exactly. Yes. All of all of the things that I talked about co- came from the literature, not my personal opinion. Yes. Thank you, Stephanie, for that. For that little clarification there. So some of the big discussion things that we came away from this was that there was a lot on adolescent responsibility. Communities play a huge part in this. They really set the tone for what's considered responsible. And they also set the tone for accessibility. You know, what what clinics are in the area? What are schools talking about? What does access look like? Uh, Some other important things were that really women need to be able to retain a capacity or control over all sexual encounters during this process, right? Which we know isn't necessarily what's happening. The other really big thing that came from this that was interesting was that responsibility was really mostly measured by what people would call quote unquote, irresponsible behaviors because responsibility is hard to measure. And so to put this into, to put responsibility into quantifiable terms, they would measure again, quote, irresponsible or outcomes that are undesired at like a public health level. For example, uh, measuring the number of abortions, unplanned pregnancies or STIs. That was how so very often this was numerically measured, which obviously, as we know, that these are judgments with made without consideration of context. That's very value-laden. It assumes that any abortion is irresponsible, that every unplanned pregnancy is irresponsible. So it was really interesting to just understand how much of that was related to kind of this quote-unquote opposite of responsibility. I kind of nerd out when you say unintended pregnancies or unintended pregnancies. So that's that's what my dissertation in a way was looking at. So I I love that. And then then assuming that an unplanned pregnancy is Mm quote-unquote irresponsible. That's like, (laughs) there's a lot of things happening. That's a hot button. button I know there's a lot of things that could get unpacked there, which is why you now know I said this very value laden. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. But I, that's why I love that you did this because I think it's, I think it's like a term that we all throw Mm -hmm. out responsibility, Mm -hmm. not just with sexual behavior, but of course with sexual Mm -hmm. behavior. And it's not really something that you sit and think about like, whoa, Mm -hmm. Like, what is responsible and how am I casting judgment? Yeah, and I will, I do just want to add that I do, I so appreciate, I mean, I cited Dr. Satcher, I couldn't tell you how many times, because 
they did actually have a pretty decent definition. They were of the very few sources that had a definition and, and talked about a lot of these things. And it was really a push for community level responsibility. And I think that that's not something that we really take on uh, in a, what's the word I'm looking for, in a constructive way. I think when com- quote unquote communities take this on, it's in the form of how can we make sure we don't have abortions from like restricting access standpoint. And that's where their responsibility idea of it comes from. So I I really appreciated their inclusion of that. This is a community thing and it's the highlighting that the antecedents, if we want folks to be responsible, we have to have forethought knowledge and access. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that some people would argue, obviously, we would be one of those people that abortion would be responsible for some. Yeah. And I will. That's something that I want to talk about with that came about in the next in the in the next piece. All right. Well, let's jump into that then. So you did the concept of analysis where you defined responsible sexual behavior. So then you went to your your advisor's dissertation data collection and tell us what you did with that and who those those people were. Yes. So then the next piece of this was the secondary data analysis. And this was with college women at a Midwestern university. There was 35 women in total and they had all discussed responsible sexual behavior. And so from there, I looked at their definition and and really the whole interview in total. Uh, But the part I focused on for this was just the responsibility piece. And so their definition was women defined being sexually responsible as self-advocating through actions that were consistent with personal goals and values, while being aware of consequences that could threaten these goals or values. Actions included mindful partner selection, communicating boundaries, and preventing pregnancy. And so where we kind of start seeing some, they'll start maybe with similarities. The similarities between this and the and the concept analysis was one, this awareness of consequences, right? You have to be able to have forethought and knowledge on what these consequences are. And then it's actions or deliberate patterns of behaviors that prevent unwanted outcomes. So for college women, that was mindful partner selection and preventing pregnancy through birth control or condoms, but active risk management strategies. That's the word I was phrase I was looking for. Active risk management strategies, deliberate and you know. And what was really interesting though within college women and such a driving force behind their behavior or the choices they made was this awareness of their personal goals and values. And it wasn't necessarily personal goals related to procreating. It was this connection between personal goals and their sexual health. So, for example, I want to graduate in four years. And so I want to make sure that I am aware that if I were to get pregnant, that that would make graduation very difficult. So, therefore, I'm going to use birth control during this time to prevent pregnancy. So there, there was this very clear link between goals and their sexual behavior. And, and I think I think in this paper, I do actually 
refer back to Stephanie's work with reproductive life planning, which is very much goals-based and having this awareness between, okay, if these are my personal life goals, how does that extrapolate to my sexual health and the decisions I'm making there? So it was interesting to draw a comparison between our our work or our dissertation work. But some, some other imp- interesting things that came out of this was this I don't, I hesitate to call it an idea, but this discussion that abortion is a responsible choice, which I think really flew in the face of everything that I had read with the concept analysis. In the concept analysis, nowhere did I see that abortion is considered responsible. And in this situation, uh, woman did have a an abortion and she talked about it in the context that I had this because I was protecting my educational goals and my career goals and so she said the the responsible thing for her to do was to then have an abortion to protect these goals. And so although I may personally believe this and I'm sure that most of our listeners also believe this. It was really nice to almost have this like external validation that here's someone in the population framing it this way. Again, when I just come from this very literature value laden that abortion is irresponsible. So that that was very refreshing and enjoyed reading that part. But then also really in kind of tied to this goal framework with like education and financials that informed sexual decision was that like responsibility really became a part of who these women were. You know, it wasn't just these behaviors like, oh, I wear a condom or I do this. It was, it really became a part of them in taking ownership of that. And the, the part of so just, I kind of keep getting tangential because I get so excited about this stuff. So sorry if I sound like I'm totally rambling. But another piece that I think was really important that came out of this was talking about how the role of condoms. And I think, you know, when a lot of us think of the college context, we're like, oh, we think of the hookup culture and STIs and all these things. And what was interesting was that when women, for the most part, discussed condoms, it was not for STI prevention. They would use condoms with birth control as a means to, like, doubly make sure that they're not going to get pregnant. So it was like having a plan A and a plan B all at the same time just for pregnancy. And, of course, you know, naturally, like, there is STI prevention with wearing condoms, but it wasn't because... They didn't say, oh, I use birth control to prevent pregnancy and I use condoms to prevent STIs. It was, I use both to make sure I'm not going to get pregnant. Which made me really think about more globally, and this isn't in this paper because it's a bit tangential, was how we market condoms, right? And how we how we discuss condoms. And that really, college women didn't, again, they were aware, but it wasn't, they didn't acknowledge the role in STI prevention as much as they acknowledge their role in pregnancy prevention. You know, I think that is really interesting and it would, I don't know that literature very well. I know there is a dearth of information or literature studies on increasing condom usage to prevent STIs and trying to change the views on condoms. Like, 
yeah, the narrative got not, you know, so people don't hate them mm-hmm. as much or, and I, I feel like we've talked, I don't even remember who, but when you ask a partner to use a condom, there's this level of mistrust mm-hmm. then, or the, the other, the partner being asked to wear a condom is, is viewed as, you know, I'm dirty or you don't trust me. So then the other partner isn't wanting to bring it up. Um, So I think that that's really interesting and a lot to unpack there. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, really, we could not that you did that. No, we could probably have a whole conversation, a whole episode (laughs) where we talk an hour about condom use and public health messaging and how do we reframe that? So. And if we have a listener who <laughs> who has that ex- expertise, please let us know. Email yeah, us. <laughs> we'd love to chat with you. <laughs> All right. So you talk to these college women mm-hmm. who were very goal oriented. Mm-hmm. It sounded like, which again I nerd out on, which you already mentioned. Goals. I love goals. Or <laughs> <laughs> talking about goals. So then. You moved on mm-hmm. and you you interviewed women who were in rural communities. Mm-hmm. So can you talk about sort of who you talked with yes. and and how that those findings were different? Yes, and, and goals definitely was something that was different between the two. Okay, so then the last piece of my dissertation, and again in the paper that like fingers crossed hopefully soon will be submitted and published, uh, was with rural women. And these were all rural Iowa women. I had 10 women, which, boy, did I have to work really hard to even get 10 women to talk to me about their sexual lives. (laughs) So anyway, so I had 10 women. And again, this was looking at one, how do they define responsible sexual behavior, but then two, how is their context impacting enactment of responsible sexual behavior and the messaging that they got. And these were lengthy interviews. They were like hour and a half interviews. So very data rich interviews. And they were mostly unmarried and they were all white or non-Hispanic Christian women. And the definition of responsible sexual behavior that I got from that piece was that responsible sexual behavior is understanding the potential outcomes of sex and taking action to manage risks by preventing pregnancy and STIs, being mindful of partner selection, and seeking knowledge and resources. So just at like a pure definition level. What I found was that between all three, between the literature, college women, and rural women, we have this piece where, one, you have to be aware, right? You have to know that there are consequences, quote unquote consequences, whether they be positive or negative, to your behavior. And in most times, people are referring to the negative consequences like unplanned pregnancies or STIs. And then there's this active risk management piece that there's something you need to do to actively manage this risk. And again, within that is like getting the knowledge and resources you need to then implement these active risk management strategies. For example, getting on birth control to prevent pregnancy. But within this, neither the college women or the rural women specifically highlight their social context and how that impacts their definition. But within rural area, the main message, 
every woman unanimously talked about multiple times was that everything is abstinence only. It is all abstinence only until marriage. They are swimming in abstinence only messaging. It comes from their parents. It comes from their schools. It comes from their churches. It, they even would say that like at the community level, if the community had to define responsible sexual behavior, it is abstinence only and in a heterosexual marriage, which I don't think is probably that shocking to any of our listeners that 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 would be the messaging that they're receiving. And really, when you look at the context piece of it, it's also not surprising that when you have this abstinence-only dominant messaging, that that's almost like the guidepost for all the decision-making. So, for example, if everyone's saying abstinence-only until marriage, of course, they're not going to talk about it in schools. Most women talked about how they felt that their schools did not have like the breadth or the depth that they needed some women said that they those courses were electives so they weren't even courses that they had to take or they just didn't take it or didn't have it or if they did have it it was basically just say no and very limited birth control options it certainly didn't go through all of the options stephanie how far down this road do you want me to go (laughs) like i could talk about this for a while you want me to talk about like parent role provider role peer role like yeah i think you so want me to just, i mean we have some time just, right okay just get into i didn't know if you want me to like free ramble about all these things <laughs> or if you want or, me to ask you structured questions yeah. i can free ramble that's not a problem free ramble you want me a free ramble okay so i'm gonna free yeah. ramble okay so first i want to talk about okay so we talked about this abstinence only messaging so I'm going to start with parents. And so, and unsurprisingly, the literature backs us up that if a parent talked to their daughter, it was a mother, which is pretty common. You'll find that in the literature. So not surprising there. If parents talked about it, it was out of fear. And what I mean by that was because they had discovered that maybe their child's peer or family member, like a cousin, had was having sex you know, as a teenager got pregnant. And so it it became this, like, I don't want you to end up like your cousin. And so there came out of fear. There was only one parent. And I think this was kind of also though implied with others that sex, that having sex could have positive outcomes, much like we found with the, with the concept analysis that there are these positive consequences to responsible sexual behavior. But those, what was interesting for the rural context was basically the param- there were parameters in place for in which these, the outcomes of sex are positive. And that is, you can only have positive outcomes of sex if you're married in a heterosexual marriage. Then you could experience positives from sex but until then there were no positive discussed sex was never discussed in an enlightening way a way to like have self-fulfillment or enhanced relationships and so it was really out of fear and also this really pervasive idea that if parents talked to their daughters that that would give them ideas 
And so if I, if I am talking to my child about this, then that means they're going to get ideas and they're going to go and do this. And even to the extent where one participant talked about how uh, the provider had prescribed birth control for non-sex reasons. I believe it was acne, which is very common. And the mom said no, because she felt that if she put her daughter on birth control for acne, that then that would be like a, a license to have sex. Or the, like her approval for her to have sex. And so what was also really interesting about parents is that they too would say no sex until marriage, even if that didn't happen for them. Like they were a single mother or had their children before they got married. So it was interesting that this ideal gets passed along, even if that's not something that was the communities, or their parents' own behavior. But it gets passed along anyways. So I thought that was really interesting. Next is probably, we'll talk, let's talk about partners. So partners was interesting in that partners have both the ability to help, like facilitate women in being responsible, but also to hurt women. And what I mean by that, and as a facilitator, some women mentioned how it was like their boyfriends who drove them to the Planned Parenthood so that they could access birth control or the ones who prompted, hey, let's get you on something so that we can be safe here. But on the other hand, partners also would undermine women's wanting to be irresponsible, like they would refuse to wear condoms. I also had one woman in the story, this is something that will never leave my brain, is that she didn't have the economic ability or and any she just didn't have the ability to get on birth control. She didn't have transportation to get to a clinic to get birth control and her partner refused to wear condoms. Yet he told her that if she got pregnant, he'd throw her down the stairs. So he threatened her with physical violence, but yet he wouldn't do anything to help prevent pregnancy and she had no means to access it. And unfortunately she did get pregnant and she did seek an abortion because her options were get an abortion or be at the hands of intimate partner violence and get thrown down the stairs. And so that's a story that's always resonated with me and stays very near and dear to my heart when I think of all this anti-abortion legislation. But a little bit of a side note. So, yeah, interesting that partners had a way of enacting or also being barriers. But peers, and this, I found this in the literature too, that peers are a main source of education for rural women, more so than partners, more so than parent schools. Like, it came down to social networks. Social networks was where women would learn about various birth controls. Like, for example, if Stephanie told me that she had a marina, loved it, I'd be like, oh, okay, that I, I want that for myself, so I want a marina too. So they would learn about birth control options. They would also learn about accessing clinics. So, for example, if one had gone to Planned Parenthood, they say, hey, go to Planned Parenthood. You can get a three-month supply. You can get confidential services, all these things. And so, uh, so yeah, social networks were huge. And we'll get back to social networks in a minute when we talk more about kind of the, the social piece of the rural area. And then, again, unsurprising, we find this in the literature, we find this now, is just in general, poor access to clinics. 
just women driving over 30 minutes just to access a Planned Parenthood, sometimes even further, because confidentiality is a huge thing in rural areas. And so if you can have a clinic that offers confidential services, something you can hide from your parents, like having it mailed to you, or you can go and pick it up, or your parents, it doesn't go on their insurance, you can get it for pretty inexpensively were all really big things. And so Planned Parenthood or clinics like that, like an FQHC, were very important to women accessing, and they would access it even if it meant long drive times, which I thought was really interesting. But for some women, provider bias was really important in in impacting how they enacted. For example, I had one woman who talked about how she really wanted a marina that's what she she wanted some type of IUD but the provider had convinced her to just take birth control pills or maybe it was the NuvaRing so she's like so I came in wanting this but then got talked out of it and just got sent home with this and so there was a lot of provider bias depending on the clinic that they went to And the other part with clinics that became problematic, and this was something that had happened, one of the clinics that I was working with while I was writing my dissertation was really an interesting time for Iowa, interesting in a very bad way, was the a lot of legislation coming through that would cut funding to Planned Parenthood because they provide abortions. And one of the clinics that I had been working with at that time, actually, when that legislation went through, it passed in Iowa, actually had to close down. And what was unfortunate was that all the clinics that had to close down because of that funding or losing that funding were clinics that actually didn't provide abortions, but were clinics that would serve eight plus counties in Iowa. And so it was, I did a lot of crying at my dining room table. Um, not just because of the dissertation process, but just because of how knowing what I knew when I interviewed women from that area and perceived risk and all these things, like it, it just broke my heart and, and wondering what's going to happen to these women because now they don't have a clinic to access. Maybe that's kind of another side story. So then it comes the context of the rural area and and wow i think you know having grown up in it and now living with it you, i see it i definitely see it but it was interesting to to talk to women about this and so the big thing that comes from it in addition to this you know how abstinence only thing is how rural areas can attenuate risk and what i mean by that is every woman talked about their community as everyone knows everyone Everyone knows your business. Anything can get back. Everyone knows everyone. And this played out in interesting ways. So from an STI standpoint, what happens is, and as if you remember, part of the definition of RSB was that there's this piece of mindful partner selection or this knowing, quote unquote, knowing your partner was a way that women managed risk. And so how they would, quote unquote, know their partners, they would rely heavily on their social networks or how much they, quote unquote, knew about their partner insofar as, you know, inquiring not to the person they're having sex with, but again, their partners or or their peers 
or themselves on who's had sex with who. So, for example, if I'm like, well, I know Stephanie really well, and I know who she's had sex with, so she's safe. I, And because of this false knowing, I would say that Stephanie's low risk. And so I would have sex with her without a condom. But what's interesting, though, is that women would also, though, on the other hand, say that not everyone knows who they've all had sex with. So it was interesting to hear people gauge their risk on their networks, but then also admit that their networks probably don't know everyone that they've had sex with. So there was definitely, and I saw this low risk because there were women who would say, oh, there are no STIs in my community. That's a big city problem. They don't exist here. And they had mentioned that why part of, and again, it, Part of their discussion of this was, oh, if someone had an STI, I'd know. So if someone were to come out and say, if Stephanie came out and said that she had an STI, oh, trust me, someone, either I or my network would know that Stephanie had an STI and that would get communicated to me. But the problem is, is like, not shockingly, Folks don't get tested for STIs, one, because they have a low perceived risk. But then if they do get tested, I mean, I had a participant say, oh, if you came out and said that you had an STI, that would be social suicide. So there's so much secrecy and taboo and judgment around sex that there's just no way that you would come out and say that you had an STI because that would be social suicide. Everyone would know. And do you want the world knowing that you're dirty, quote unquote dirty, that their words? Or, and I think also the bigger part of this is if you have an STI, well, that means you had sex. And that's really what this comes down to is now you've admitted you've had sex. And likely this is occurring outside of marriage. So the other part where everyone knows everyone got interesting was in how women would access. So for example, if I'm going to buy condoms, I'm not buying them in my community because chances are that the checkout person down at Dollar General knows my parents or knows someone in my network who's going to come along and say, uh, Nicole is at Dollar General buying condoms or even a pregnancy test. You don't buy pregnancy tests in town either. So women talked about driving 30 minutes or whatever to a neighboring community to purchase those things because of, you know, this more anonymity or this confidentiality because likely it wasn't going to get back to their social networks that could get back to their parents that they're having sex. And so this really, everyone knows everyone, created a lot of interesting dynamics within the rural context. Wow. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of it is not surprising, but I think that's powerful too, that sometimes when you, you like, you get stereotypes of people and you don't really think through those. And then when you hear about how women are impacted by look, poor access or this abstinence only culture, you're really like, oh, wow, that's, that is an issue. We kind of, I don't know, sometimes make light of that's what rural areas are going through, but that's a huge issue. Well, and I think the, the biggest part and one of the points I'm really trying to make in my paper right now is that, 
you know, despite all these barriers, despite all this messaging, it's not stopping women from having sex. <laughs> right. It's not. I right. mean, I had, I have one participant who was waiting until she was married and she was engaged at that point. And even she had admitted that she wants birth control once she's married, but she doesn't even know how to make an appointment mm -hmm. to get birth control because nobody's even talked about, okay, so once you are married, now what do you do? I think there's this idea that marriage is a silver bullet for problems. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, if nobody if nobody had sex until they got married, we wouldn't have to worry about abortions and birth control and all these things. But that's just not true. Mm -hmm. Married folks are getting abortion. Married folks are on birth control. Married folks are experiencing intimate partner violence. Like marriage is not a silver bullet. Mm -hmm. And so when we're not talking about anything, now you even have married folks who are having um, unplanned pregnancies or mistimed or that are also putting themselves at potential risk too. And yeah, it's, it's not stopping them. And so I, I mean, a part of me was just like the, the power, I don't know, the empowerment agency or whatever that rural women still, you know, the things that they have to, to deal with. Oh, so that reminds me, sorry, I'm going to get tangential real quick. So in addition to peers being really important, and how women define and, and access or enact responsible sexual behavior was the role of personal experiences. Personal experiences were huge. And it was one of those things that the more negative, quote air quotes, negative, that the consequences of an experience were, the more it would change their definition or how much they What's the word? I'm trying to be very, there's so many value-laden words in this conversation, and I'm trying to be careful, that would maybe change how they define responsible sexual behavior or how much they really committed to it. So what I mean by that is that, and it wasn't necessarily also just their own experiences. It might be like, you know, Stephanie and I are best friends, and she got an STI. And that's really eye-opening to me because I didn't think that STIs were in my community. And, you know, that's really core-shaking to me. So maybe I really need to evaluate how much I push for using condoms and become more of a stickler about that. Or we had I had women who did end up experiencing an unplanned pregnancy. And so as a result, you know, they're like, they're doubly sure. They're using birth control and condoms because quote unquote, lesson burned really hard there. That was their quotes, not mine. And so personal experiences were huge. And I had one woman say too, she's like, you know, sometimes it's like an older, the wiser kind of thing. You speed, you get a speeding ticket, you learn, oh, if I keep speeding, my insurance is going to go up. And she said, fortunately, I've not had anything bad happen to me. But, you know, as a result of these personal experiences, she now has more self-advocacy in using condoms because she recognizes that going without has never really gotten her quote very far. And so I think it's important the role that personal experiences had for these women and that I think as providers and as society, why would we want that for, for women or for anybody that they have to learn about sexual health via experiences and I get to a, some extent there is like a part of, you know, needing to experience it to, to quote, learn about it. But I don't think we should aspire 
Or I think on the other hand, you then have some people who say, oh, well, you need to live with your consequences. Like if, if you got pregnant, that's your fault and that baby's yours. It's not the baby's fault. Well, why are we putting people in that situation to begin with? Why are we forcing women to learn about their reproductive or their sexual health by testing it out, you know, because nobody's talking to them about it. And I think that's really feeds into why you and I started this podcast is because so much of sexual health and it came out so much in, in with, especially with rural women is communication based. Like folks need to talk about this. And in the rural area, folks aren't talking about it. And as a result, you have women who have to learn through their social networks. They have to learn through it through personal experiences. And that's not the best way to learn about it. So I want to get into the communication part, of course. But mm-hmm. I wanted to just go back to the goals part. Oh, yeah. You kind of yeah. touched on that a little bit with the college women they really linked their goals with responsibility and doing certain responsible, quote unquote, responsible behaviors to align with their goals, which is what reproductive life planning is all about. And how were rural women, how did they talk about their goals and, and how did those align with responsible sexual behavior? Yeah, so this was another really interesting part, and I would say difference from each other, is that when it came to rural women, and I'm going to admit, you know, this could be flawed research questioning. This could be, you know, I could own part of this. So what I'm telling you, you know, again, I'm not saying I approach this perfectly, so maybe part of it's on me. But what I found was that Goals weren't something that women organically brought up. It was something that I had to ask. Like I would say, how do how do your personal goals impact like your sexual decision making or your sexual health? And it was I mean, I had women tell me that those are two separate things in my life. They're like they aren't connected like they don't when they think about their personal goals, they don't immediately say, oh, then then these this is what I should do in, in my personal sexual health to protect those goals. And I got a lot of pause when I would ask that question and can you reframe it? So again, so maybe part of it's part of how I asked, but I mean, I'd have women say, oh, I don't really think about that unless I'm in a relationship. And so sometimes being in a relationship was something that would help facilitate or um, make, like women would maybe not be on birth control until, and then they'd be like, oh, I'm in a relationship, so I'll get back on birth control. Or maybe there would be that little bit more awareness, but it wasn't, it certainly wasn't a structure of their definition like it was for college women, wasn't something that was organically brought up. And I did have a couple of women though who did talk about, who who were actively like enrolled in college um, and we're just living at home at the time who had said, oh yeah, uh, I going to school is really important to me. And so I use birth control so I don't get pregnant, but otherwise the personal goals for rural women were more like, oh, I'd like to travel. I'd like to get out of debt. They weren't education necessarily education related. And I'm not saying that having educational goals is somehow more motivating than other goals. That's not at all what I'm saying. And I'm also don't want to send the message that, 
you can't be responsible unless you have goals. That's also not what I want to say. But it was really interesting to hear the difference in the the role that goals played and how the connection, how there was a very active connection for college women, but less of an active connection or from what I could tell for rural women. And so I thought that was really interesting, the difference there and, you know, could probably be a whole nother piece that gets looked at. And, and I think I see this too in a rural area. It's like your sexual self is, very separate. You know, it's behind closed doors. It's a secret. We hide it. We don't talk about it. We don't acknowledge it. And then you have, you know, your social facing self. And, and this is me just hypothesizing for my own, my own experiences as a call or as a rural woman. And then partly what I saw is I think we, the rural area has just done a quote unquote, really great job at separating those like those are two different versions of yourself there you are not also like nicole and a sexual being you're nicole and then your sexual being is in your bedroom that nobody knows about (laughs) nobody talks about and so i think that that's really interesting to have this like separation of selves and it makes me think about you know relating back to when we talked to dr nikki julian and sex shame and how much sex shame there is and what that does and Again, that's was beyond my research, but something that I start thinking about when I think about my findings and my personal experiences. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And when you look at the flip side of college and the quote unquote hookup culture, it's sort of, I mean, you know, at least for a group of people, all about sex. (laughs) (laughs) It's always on the table. Yeah, yeah. So... That, but I think it's always on the table anywhere. It is. It's just You're right. how much you talk right. about the table. Right. <laughs> when college, it's sort of expected, like, oh, I'm going to go yeah. to this party and I'm going to hook up with, with this person or these people or whatever. But it's situated in a context that's okay with that. Right. Exactly. Exactly. You know, like, like it's okay. But in a rural area, I think people still do that. Like, that's not a that's not, not a thing. Right. They it's just it that. more. Yeah, yeah. It, it's in this layer of like secrecy and shame and right. judgment. And I mean, I had women who talked about like, if you have more than one sexual partner, you're a whore, you're a slut, you're, you know, there's a lot of judgment that comes with having sex outside of marriage. And they said, that's really, it's hard to deal with. But yet they're all probably doing it. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> I I had participants say they're like, you know, here you, you would hear a parent just ripping down another teenage girl when here their daughter was doing the exact same thing. And it's interesting because I've been in the literature now again with having working on my discussion section and, and they talk about this idea where parents think that their children are asexual, but yet every other child is hypersexual. <laughs> so it's always the mm-hmm. other kids that are the problem, right? Their children are not having sex. They're asexual. And so it was interesting to come across a study that talked about that. Mm-hmm. It's like parents' perceptions of their child's sexuality and then also their behaviors. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I want to then get into bringing all of your dissertation findings into what we try to do and improve Mm -hmm. communication between the clinician and the patient. So first of all, 
could you kind of summarize everything? Like, you know, what's your big summary that you are big takeaway from your from your work? What would be my next paper? <laughs> <laughs> or just like if you sum up yes. your findings in one sentence, yeah. what would you say? If I had to sum it up, is really that at the end of the day, the biggest pieces of responsible sexual behavior is one is there has to be this access to knowledge resources consequence. Like you have to know that these, that not only the quote unquote consequences of sexual behavior, but you know, how does your body work? How do these things happen? And then the ability to access things to, if you want to prevent pregnancy, having access to preventing pregnancy. So there's this huge piece, right? Is this access to knowledge and resources? And in what way, when we cut off access to knowledge and resources, are we not further marginalizing really everybody? You know, my stuff was related to women, but really everybody. When we say, well, now you have to be responsible. So we're saying you have to be responsible, but we're going to cut off everything that actually makes you responsible. Because it, and to me, there's just such like a dissonance between that. We want you to be responsible and not get pregnant and have abortions. So we're going to like cut off all your abortion access. We're going to cut off all your birth control access. We're going to, and we're going to just have abstinence only in the schools and all these things. It, to me, like there's just, well, it just makes no, no sense. Nicole, you're just not supposed to have sex. Well, yes. Right. We <laughs> talked about that. marriage is the silver bullet (laughs) but as i said that does not stop a it didn't stop women from having sex in general but it also doesn't fix all your problems once you are married so there's that so that's the part that i really just want to send home is that you can't cut these things off but then also say you have to be responsible it's just it just doesn't make sense to me And then the other part is this active risk management strategies. And I think as providers, we've kind of talked about this in other episodes, like what's my stuff versus what's your stuff. And I think as providers, and I see this especially with people who say, oh, well, you know, with my religion, like that's not responsible. So therefore, I'm not going to prescribe birth control unless you're in a committed monogamous relationship. And so... I think as providers, this comes back to in what way are you pushing your own idea of responsible sexual behavior versus what is the woman or the patient's definition of responsible sexual behavior. And so I think it's important for us to recognize what is our own stuff and but then also asking communicating with our patients, well, what is your definition? What what does work for you? How is your ability to, okay, not only do you have this definition, but how how able are you able to enact that? You know, I might have this definition, but what if I can't get access to birth control? What if I'm in a relationship where I don't have control over every time I have sex? What does that look like? And so I think there's that really big piece. And then you know, I'm a little fuzzy on this, but I I think it's there. I think it's worth exploring is this goals part. What are your goals? You know, and this ties in with the reproductive life planning and how can we align and connect your personal behavior, sexual behavior, choices, decision making, whatever you want to call it, with your personal goals. And again, I think there is probably also some like privilege laden within that, that we also need to accept and recognize 
So I'm not going to be. A hundred percent. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's also really important. You know, there's a lot of things we have to consider, but I think there's some value in discussing goals, but I think they're also with that becomes a dose of what's, what's privileged and what's not, what's realistic. But I think we have to understand what is realistic for our patients. What's realistic. And we will never know that until you actually communicate with your patients on what is realistic. Yeah, that's an excellent point. So could we talk a little bit more about goals just because I'm such a fan of that uh, word (laughs) or that having healthcare practitioners ask patients about their goals? And I know, like, as you said, goals could be kind of a privilege or value laden. Like, so I think that a lot of us think of goals as I would like to go to college. I would like to buy a home. I would like X career. And I don't know if you got into that with your rural health participants, but what kind of goal did you talk about goals and what kind of goals did they talk about? Yeah, we did briefly talk about what some of their goals were, and they were more along the financial lines or, uh, for example, wanting to get out of debt, pay off credit cards, travel more. Some did mention that in the future they would maybe like to go back to school, but it wasn't something that it wasn't like, oh, I'm going back to school. It was, oh, maybe someday. I mean, they still weren't sure on what they would go back to school for, but that was perhaps something in the future or buying a home. Yeah, so they definitely had a different tone than the, oh, I want to graduate in four years. I want to have X career and then I'm going to get married. There's definitely a different tone. The reason I asked that is because that came up in my dissertation with healthcare providers and clinicians that some people obviously are really have really specific, straightforward goals. And a a lot of people don't, particularly women who have lower incomes or maybe from rural areas where they're sort of fine with where they are and what they're doing. And, And I think that's fine. I think that they still have goals, though. And so this isn't really part of your dissertation, but I just wanted to add that as a communication tip. Sometimes it's not even like asking like, what are your goals? But just say, what would you like to do in the next year? What does your life look like in the next year? Don't talk about reproduction or anything like that. But when that topic comes up, maybe they want birth control or they're sexually active and they don't want birth control, then you might ask them, well, you said that you wanted to pay off your car in the next year. How would having a baby impact that? Or how would getting an STI impact that? That might not be as severe seeming to some people, but I think that pregnancy is. So even though, like you said earlier, the the participants who are from rural areas didn't necessarily connect their sexual behavior with their goals, you can sort of help them connect those two because they are connected, whether we realize it or not. So that's kind of all I wanted to say there. Do you have a summary of just, you kind of said things along the way for our listeners to be cognizant of? Do you have any tips, direct tips for communication related to the term responsible sexual behavior? 
I would say don't use it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that's okay. I mean, there's that. But I think if you do use it, then you have to be aware that there are these antecedents or these things that have to be in place before you can quote unquote assume someone to be responsible, have responsible, be responsible, whatever that looks like. So, and I think so many times you hear providers say really harmful things and it's like, well, if I mean, are you trying to get pregnant? They say, Mm -hmm. well, I'm not using anything. And that's very damaging. And so I think that as a provider, you have to, you know, goes back to what's what's your definition of responsible sexual behavior. You have to own that that is your definition of responsible behavior and recognize that maybe although you're in this context, like the rural area, that has this one dominant messaging, that that's not what your patients are taking on. That's not the reality that they're navigating. The, it might not be a reality that they are in control of every sexual encounter that they have. And then there's also this piece of in what way are you a barrier to those antecedents? Again, if you're assuming or wanting people to take on this responsibility, in what way are you acting as a facilitator or a barrier to them having the access, the knowledge, the forethought? And I think some of this comes down to as a provider, we have basic assumptions. Like we just assume because of all the education we have, how could you not know how pregnancy occurs? How could you not know how to prevent a pregnancy. And I think those are things that we really take for granted. And there are folks who just genuinely don't know. And maybe there is a piece where you just need to talk about, do you understand how the process, how your period process works with like ovulation and when you can get pregnant and how birth controls do different things to your body to not get pregnant and and do people really understand that and i think that that's again part of this communication piece is where are we making these assumptions and where are we hurting folks and assuming that they can quote unquote be more responsible than what they actually have the capacity to i think that's a really good summary of everything that you said and bringing that to application for our clinicians. So on behalf of myself, (laughs) I would like to thank you for being on your own podcast today. Um, It has been a pleasure learning more about your dissertation. It's been a while since we've talked about it and I'm sure that you've processed it even more than the two years ago when we were really talking about it a lot. And do you have anything else that you would like to add before we end today? I think this probably was a good thing to have some space to think about. I think with working on my last paper, I've gotten a lot more clarity. I've had more time to really digest all of these ideas in total. And I think it's really important to also recognize the the policy piece that goes along with this, especially in the current administration, we're in the attempts to block abortion and cut all these fundings to clinics that provide birth control and all these things and looking at how interesting it is that responsibility is used so much in these conversations. And yet, 
here we have all of these actions working against it. And I think that's an important piece for providers to think about and to also think about in what ways can you be an advocate and really take a step back and think about how do I foster this? What is an appropriate way to foster this? What language am I using that's value laden or not? And eventually I would like, I think it would be cool to take this a step further and really analyze it. But knowing full well that even during my dissertation process that my, that it was affected by policies that went into place and cut funding to a clinic that I had been working with. I mean, these are very real things that are happening and again, we st- we're still holding folks to this standard, yet cutting, cutting them off to even reach the standard that we're holding for them. And so, yeah, it, it's always fun to nerd out on my research. And I guess it's taken us two years for me to finally do that. So, <laughs> so I appreciate being on my own podcast. And <laughs> <laughs> to talk about this and and I will lo- I always love feedback from other people and I love nerding out about rural women's health but I think this responsibility piece is just something that's really interesting to me on a more social systems level too. Well, thank you so much. Thanks. And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. We are always looking for new supporters, sponsors, and guests. So if you'd like to be on our show or know someone who you think would be perfect, let us know. You can find more information on how to support us and contact us on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com.